0: At the end of the love chapter, we read the following. It says, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter, the love chapter, and verse 13. Now while Paul testified that the greatest is love, the other two are also essential. They can't be forgotten. We don't take love and throw everything else away. For example, we read in the faith chapter that it's impossible to please God without faith. Now, that's a pretty strong statement when you think about it. Faith is something that we think of most often when we think of getting sick or someone else getting sick, that's when we need to exercise faith. It's likely that we think of faith most often in the context of healing. And healing is, or faith is a huge factor in healing, there's no doubt about it. Uh, We see this in the ministry of Jesus and of the apostles. We see that healing was a major uh, sign of the Messiah, the real one, the only one that really showed that he was a Messiah with his uh, death, burial, and resurrection after three days and three nights, but nevertheless, we see that he performed many signs and wonders during his ministry, and those signs and wonders continued through the apostles later on. Yet faith was not always present in healings. We know that Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you, but we also know that there were healings that took place where there didn't seem to be any faith involved whatsoever, where he just stepped in and healed someone. One example is in John the fifth chapter. I'll turn over there, John five, and we can notice it. It's an unusual situation here. I actually sent a Memo out to some of our ministers to ask if they had any ideas about this, because I've never heard anybody really explain it, nor have I tried to explain it. It seems like a rather unusual or bizarre incident that we read of here in John, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse two. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five uh, porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well and whatever uh, disease he had of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Long time, 38 years, whatever this infirmity was. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? Well, I think that's a question that we would all answer the same way, of course. The sick man answered him, sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, there's no indication that this man had any special faith. Uh, we don't know exactly the explanation for what took place. I did receive about three responses from some of our ministers uh, answering uh, various ideas as to what this means. There are ideas and commentaries, but we, we can't necessarily go on them. What is the idea that this man was there, that God allowed this to happen over a long period of time to bring people there and to show uh, Christ's power and uh, to show that he is our healer? We have the example of the man who was blind and was healed, over in the ninth chapter of John. We could just turn over there. We have this example there. John, the ninth chapter, in verse 1, says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is, was born blind? But Jesus answered in verse 3, John 9, verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now you can read the remainder of this and see that, uh, again, uh, this man did not exhibit any special faith, although when Jesus told him to go and wash his eyes that uh, Jesus had uh, spit and, and uh, uh, made a, a little bit of uh, mud there and put them on his eyes, and... Uh, At any rate, uh, he said, wash your eyes in this pool, and he did do that. So maybe that was exercising faith there. And this clearly is an example that it was done to show the works of God, to show uh, Christ was our healer. So when we go back to John 5, we could come to that conclusion that that's the reason for it. Another explanation for it is that this was not an angel of God, but an angel of uh, the dark side, you might say, who is playing games. We have people that go to places like Fatima to be healed and other places around the world. This is common in uh, pagan religions and ideas. Uh, that may be an explanation for it. And then Christ showed that he is truly our healer. I think that that part of it is very clear that there was a message here that Christ is our healer, that he healed this individual on the Sabbath day, and uh, it goes on from there. So uh, exactly what the explanation is, I don't know that we know absolutely, but uh, certainly it shows that Christ was our healer at that time. Now, we never want to minimize faith and healing, even though it shows a number of examples in the New Testament where there doesn't seem to be any faith that was was involved, we also know that Christ said, according your faith, be it unto you. And we know what it says in James, the fifth chapter, where it talks about being anointed and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And so we know that that is certainly involved there, but we also see these other examples where people were healed for other reasons. I look back over the time that I've been in the ministry and the people I've met who have been miraculously healed, and some have been healed very miraculously. There's no other explanation for it. And whether they had faith, in some cases, yes. In some cases, it's questionable. But oftentimes, those are individuals who do not stay around. Uh, they fall away. And so you have to wonder, and there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from all these things. I remember a man who had an open-heart surgery, not the most recent one here, some years ago. And as he said, I would not have learned any lessons from this had God just healed me every time I got sick. Every time I got sick, God stepped in. Well, what would be the lesson of it for me? I have faith, I suppose, you might say, but I would never learn to change my my lifestyle, change the way that I live. And he realized that there was something that he needed to learn from it. So God has a lot of different reasons for doing things the way he does. But we must never minimize faith, nor should we minimize healing as an act of God that uh, is a sign of where God is working. I hope we all remember Dr. Meredith's favorite scripture. And sometimes when we hear it stated, we say, well, okay, I know that. But he uses the King James Version, or always did, where he said, I am crucified with Christ. I put to death the old man. Nevertheless, I live. So the spiritual man is dead. The old man is dead, but nevertheless, we live on in this life. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The, the new man has Christ living in him, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Showing that it isn't just our human faith, but it is the faith of Jesus Christ in us. And we must always pray that God would give us the faith of Christ, not just our own human faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. Well today, we're going to look at Hebrews the 11th chapter, and see something important that we may be missing, something that we might have missed in the past. And we'll quickly survey the chapter and then focus on one verse that reveals four lessons about faith. So let's go to Hebrews 11th chapter, and we're going to do a very, very quick survey of it. We're not going to spend a lot of time just hitting the high points here. It says in verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. By faith Enoch was taken away so that he should not see death. That's verse 5. And then verse 6, we read that. It's an important verse. We'll come back to it. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things Not yet seen. There's a pattern here I hope we're beginning to see. A certain pattern. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he was to inherit. He dwelt in land of promise with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the promise. They dwelt in tents and so forth. He waited for a city whose Foundation, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also receives strength to conceive seed. Then we skip down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Talks about Joseph in verse 22. Talks about Moses and his faith in verse 23. And the following verses. And then we skip down to verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Verse 31. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. And then he asked, what shall we say more? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And then it describes certain things that are there. Now, what is the pattern that we're seeing here? What is the the constant that we, we see? And maybe to put it differently, what is the one thing that we don't see here? In every single case that we have read, with the exception of, Sarah conceiving seed, it does not involve healing. It involves a way of life. It involves decisions that have to be made in life, critical decisions whether to obey God or whether not to obey God. You might hold your place here or come back, put a marker there, because we're going to come back time and again there. But over in the book of Joshua, We read a little bit of what we could read also in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses instructed Joshua. But he says here in verse five, No man shall be able to stand before you, this is Joshua one. Uh, and he says, As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance a land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now, what did he mean by be strong and very courageous as a warrior, as a fighter? Well, certainly that was included in it. But notice that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Now, the focus there is not just being strong to fight and be a warrior, but to be strong to observe all the commandments of God, because obviously there would be many temptations, many difficult circumstances that would arise in this particular case uh, to keep the laws of God when you live with a lot of carnal people as the people were of that day. Well, let's go back to uh Hebrews the 11th chapter once again. Uh we see that that survey we see that the examples that he uses there are not of healing, but of choices that we must make in daily living. In other words, the, the choice is do we trust God or do we trust what we see with our eyes? As it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. Do we walk by faith, or do we walk by sight? In effect, we come back to the two trees that Mr. Smith was talking about in the telecast. Uh, Which tree do we choose? The one that says, I'm going to do what seems right in my eyes, or I'm going to do what God shows is right morally and otherwise. Let's go to that verse that gives us four lessons. That's in verse 6. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Again, a very familiar passage of Scripture. And sometimes we read something that we've read before and we put it in the back of our mind, we've got that one all worked out. We've got that one down, so now we can go on to something else. But sometimes it's important to go back and look at a verse, as I talk about in John 3.16, the booklet on that subject, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse, to go back and look at what it really says. Because with that particular one, there are a lot of people out here who think they know what it says, And they miss lesson after lesson after lesson. And I would imagine that sometimes people coming into the church especially uh, have missed some lessons about the first two words for God. They really don't know the God of the Bible. Not in, in truth, in reality. They have a false conception of God, a Trinitarian God coming out of paganism. And so there are many lessons that we can learn from that. But this chapter, this, this verse, Hebrews 11 and verse 6, also contains some very important lessons for us that if we can read right over and we might miss the significance of them. So lesson number one. Lesson number one is that faith is necessary to please God. As it says, for without faith... It's impossible to please God. We cannot please God without faith. At least having a certain level of faith, there has to be faith there. Now, what exactly is faith? We'll go back to verse 1. And this is one of those passages that I think over the years has been grossly misunderstood. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Too often I've heard it stated, and I've covered this in other, on other occasions, that people say that it says that faith has evidence. Well, faith does have evidence. We'll get to that. But that's not what the verse says. It says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. There's something that goes beyond evidence, because if you go back to the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they surely had evidence. The ten plagues, including the death of the firstborn. Not just anybody, but the death of the firstborn after all the other plagues that they had seen. And then they walked through the Red Sea. What an incredible sight that must have been. And I think that most of us would think, oh, if I saw that, I would believe. Well, we have evidence from a number of people over the years that have been healed miraculously witnessed by many individuals, knowing that they were healed miraculously, and yet they fell away. There was something missing. There might have been an initial faith in the fact that God does heal, but uh, they they lacked faith in other respects. So seeing the evidence of God's working is not proof that, that one can say that is going to last with us a lifetime. The children of Israel had manna day after day, except on the Sabbath, for 40 years. That should have been proof enough that God existed and that God was working through Moses with all those plagues and everything, but something was missing. When we go to the third chapter of Hebrews it explains a little bit here of what the problem was with the children of Israel. In verse 12, he warns the Hebrews. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, belief and faith are somewhat different. They're very, very closely related. But, uh, for example, the... The, the demons believe that God exists, but they, they don't obey Him. They don't put their faith in what He had said. They had chosen their faith to be in their leader. But he says, brethren, beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. So to not believe, to not have faith in this context, is an evil heart. In departing from the living God... But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can be very, very deceitful. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The rebellion of the children of Israel those 40 years. Verse 16, Hebrews three sixteen. For who, having heard, rebelled? Who was it that rebelled who heard? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Yes, they had all of the physical evidence that they would have needed, but there was something missing. Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? And then in verse 19, it says, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief, but in the sense of they did not have faith or confidence in God. And so we see that without that faith in God, without that deep abiding faith and belief in God, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to fall away. Now, how do we know that? Well, why does it take faith for us today? We're not walking through the wilderness, but why is faith necessary for us to please God? Well, you are here. It is a Sabbath day. And for some of you, you had to make a choice between a job, perhaps a good-paying job that you had, or obeying God and keeping his Sabbath. Those of you who have grown up in the church, perhaps it's a little bit easier because you've always kept the Sabbath. For someone who has two or three children and is 35 years of age or 30 years of age and has a halfway decent job, and it's not like now where jobs are plentiful everywhere, but there have been times when it's hard to get a job, especially a good-paying job. And that was a difficult choice that was made and some of you probably right here as well as I know that there are people in the church and other congregations have had to make that decision to give up a good paying job to keep the Sabbath or in some cases it was a holy day or the Feast of Tabernacles and I've known individuals who had to tell their boss well I'm going I'm going to be gone this time and their boss has said well don't come back. I've known a few, I don't remember how many, but I've at least met one or two or three who, uh, did that exact thing, but they came back to work and their boss let them stay in some cases. But in other cases, no. I remember a, a man that I met, uh, the the boss of this individual who, who simply said over the Sabbath, it was a Sabbath situation. The man was a salesman for him. He's, sold or bought uh, oil, not so much oil, but natural gas uh, leases. And his boss, uh, there was a a well that had blown out and was on fire, and so he had to have somebody watch guard over this road leading into it. And he heard that this individual kept the Sabbath, and so he told him that he had to stand guard. Even though he was older, there was no reason for him to do it. He could have gotten anybody to do it. And he fired him over it. And it was a really good paying job and he was not a young man. He was older. And anyway, I, I went with him, talked to the boss and the boss said, you know, if, uh, he, he's made us, he said, he's made me millions of dollars. He's a good employee. He can work for me as long as, as, uh, he's alive and as long as he's able to work. But if I tell him to sweep the floor, I expect him to do it. If I tell him to stand guard on a, a fire, a, a well is blown out, I expect him to do it. He did it just to test him. He didn't have to. He could have gotten anybody else. But that's what he did. There are knuckleheads like that in this world. Uh, someone to just cut his own throat, so to speak. I believe he was going through a divorce. It doesn't surprise me. The boss, that is. Someone that's that hard-headed. But that man made the choice to keep the Sabbath. It's not always easy. But without faith, without knowing what it is that you believe, and having faith that God will work it out one way or the other, it's impossible to please God. Because people will not exercise faith. They will look at the here and the now and the around. And they'll walk by sight, not by faith. What about tithing? Tithing's not easy for some people, some individuals. I think for many of us, it's maybe one of the easier things. But we may forget that when we first came into the church, it may not have been so easy. Again, if you grow up doing it, you just Assume and you you work that out. But if you've been living up to the the limit and maybe even a little bit beyond and all of a sudden you find out about tithing, uh, first tithe, and then the festival tithe, wow, that's not so easy. And that's a trial for some people. Do we have the faith to do it? Or are we going to reason around it? And then, of course, the situations that we read of in Hebrews 11th chapter, all different circumstances, whether it be Noah and building an ark, or Abraham or Abram at the time, get out of your country and go to some place that I'll show you, or offering up your son as a sacrifice, all of those things you read through there. And Samson and various other ones, and all that they had to to do or decide upon, those, those were circumstances. Daniel... His three friends. We read of all of those situations. Now, Jesus bemoaned the fact that there was little faith uh, during his days. One case, it was calming of the sea. At the time was Peter. He invited him to come out there and walk on water. And he uh, you know, tried, and then he started looking around, and he began to sink. I wonder how many people have tried to walk on water. Well, you know, I have, and I have to say I was successful. In fact, I've driven on water uh, up north when it's frozen. Uh, my wife has even driven on water. She was a little bit fearful of that, but 16 inches of ice was okay. Even though you're over 100 feet of water below, it'll hold you up. But I'm talking about somebody just walking on liquid water. I wonder how many people have tested their faith to see if they could do that, not realizing that Jesus invited him to come down. He said, can I come to you? But instead, people want to, in some cases, either show off or test their faith in a certain way, in an artificial way, and make fools of themselves but Jesus bemoaned the fact that there was little faith during his time and yet there were other times when he praised acts of great faith was a syrophoenician woman wanted her i think it was her daughter healed and Jesus said well you know i'm not going to take what belongs to the uh, the children to give it to the dogs and yet she came back and said Yes, Lord, but even the the little, the little dogs, the little puppies they eat from the crumbs that fall. So there are examples of that where Jesus prayed, uh, praised the faith of individuals, the centurion or one or two centurions, He praised their faith. So there were times when there was great faith exhibited, and there were times when there was not. And we see the same thing today. In Luke the 18th chapter, Luke 18, and verse 2, this is where he gave the parable of the certain judge in a city who did not fear God nor regard man, and this widow lady kept coming to him, and notice, again, this is not an example of healing, but this is something entirely different. I'm not trying to diminish healing at all, but just to show that faith involves many aspects of, of daily living that we go through. She said, "Get justice for me for my adversary." And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? So that could be, of course, healing, but it could be any other circumstances. He says, I tell you, verse 8, that I will avenge them speedily. So the sense again is something other than healing. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So the point again is that it can involve many other things besides healing or in addition to healing. But you know, our human faith is not static It rises and it falls, and even among some of the servants of God, we see that to be the case. There were times when they had incredible faith, and there were other times when they lacked faith. And maybe God allows that to happen. Maybe he gives us a certain amount of faith at a time, but then removes it to help us not get puffed up or haughty over uh, what we have and what we've done. Go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings. We have this situation, a prophet by the name of Elijah. And in the 18th chapter, we see that he calls fire down from heaven to devour this sacrifice that he is drenched with water, with a very short prayer. And then he goes out and he says in verse 40, Seize the prophets of Baal, Do not let one of them escape, so they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So there are 450 was it? prophets of Baal that he executed. Now did he do it all by himself, or did he have others help him? Doesn't really say. I've always thought of him doing it himself, but maybe it says he executed them. Uh, He may have had others helping him there. In other words, he may have given the command, but they were executed. And so then Ahab runs back home or on his chariot, and, and Elijah beats him in running a good distance there. And then chapter 19, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done also how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel, verse 2, sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he went all the way from the northern part of what we call Israel today, all the way down to the, the desert area uh, south, uh, significantly south, several hours south by bus ride, south of uh, Jerusalem to a place called Beersheba. Now, it's interesting because if he brought fire down from heaven, why would you think that he would need, need to run and flee from Jezebel? Uh, let's just go over here a few pages. Let's go to First Kings. I'm sorry, Second Kings, the first chapter. And notice what happened a little bit later in Elijah's life. Uh, verse nine of Second Kings one. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty men. So he went up to him. And there he was sitting on the top of a hill, and he spoke to him, Man of God, the king has said, Come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And we know that another captain of fifty was sent, and they were consumed as well. And the third captain came, and he was uh, trembling and saying, Please let my life and the life of these 50 men be spared. And God did spare him. He had a different attitude. So we know that God could have spared Elijah from Jezebel. But where he had faith one moment, right after that time, he lacked faith and he went running. So our faith isn't always the same. I... I, I like this chapter uh, nine of uh, mark a an incident here which I think speaks well to many of us. This was where uh, this boy w- was sick, uh, actually had a, a demon. It, you could begin it in verse seventeen uh, this demon with a, a mute spirit and he had convulsions, and they brought him to him and to Jesus. And then verse 21, he asked his father, how long has this happened to him? And he said, from childhood. And Jesus said to him, "Oh well, let me go back to verse 22. It says, often he has thrown him in both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, this demon. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. He didn't even just ask for total healing. He just said, whatever you can do, help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And and I I love the response that the man has because I think that so many of us can relate to it at times. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said to him, or said with tears, Lord, I believe. Very emotional individual at that time. I believe. And then he added, help my unbelief. You know, I I think that most of us know that God can heal. If we really know that God exists, we know that God can heal. But we always wonder, will he heal in my situation, my circumstance, or is there something else that God has in mind? So he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. A rather humorous story can be found in Acts, the 12th chapter of Peter uh, being released from prison. We're no doubt aware of that situation. There are some wonderful stories here, almost humorous at times, and this is one of them. Uh, Peter had been thrown into prison, and James had just before that been killed by Herod. And so Peter's life was very much in the balance. The church recognized that I'm sure they had been praying for James, but God didn't answer that prayer with the affirmative. He allowed James to be killed. And so they were certainly worried about Peter as well. And so we read this incident how at night there an angel nudges him on his side and tells him to get up and put his sandals on and and cloak around him and and to leave. And the gates open up uh, for the, the prison and the gate to the city and, and everything like that. And Peter came to himself in verse 11 because he just thought maybe it was a vision or a dream. He, he was kind of half asleep, so to speak. And when he considered this in verse 12, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. They were crying out to God for Peter's deliverance. And so Peter knocked at the door of the gate, and a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate, insisting it was so. And what did they think? Well, this young girl is out of her mind. Maybe maybe it's Peter's angel. Now, how many of us would react that way? Oh, well, it's, it's this angel. That's kind of an odd reaction. Now, Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Well, so much for some of the ideas we have of the faith of everybody back then. You know, I think sometimes we overly critical of ourselves. We, we think that they had such incredible faith back then, and, and some did, and that we don't have any faith today. And, and sometimes that's the case. We don't have the faith that we ought to have. But nevertheless, when we really read the Scriptures for what they say, we find that here they're praying for God to intervene, and the last thing they expect is God to intervene. Isn't that odd? It's strange, isn't it? Oh, it might be his angel, but it certainly can't be him because he's in prison. And how can he possibly get out? This is why we need the faith of Christ in us. That's why Galatians 2.20 is so important, the faith of Christ. Christ liveth in me. It's something that we must cry out to God to give us. Lesson number two. We must believe that God exists. This says, without faith it's impossible to believe, to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. We must believe that God is. Go back to Hebrews once again, the 11th chapter, Hebrews 11. And here's something that Paul, We believe Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, It doesn't say it there directly, but that's our our belief. And we have reasons for that. But nevertheless, it says here in verse 3, By faith we, we, Paul is saying we all understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were made of things which are visible, which are not made. Let me try that again so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So do we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, that this whole universe was made by God through Jesus Christ, as we understand? Well, let's go back to uh, Romans, the first chapter. Because, while faith is our evidence, it doesn't mean that we have a blind faith and do not have evidence of God's working. For in Romans 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, His, that's God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." In other words, we can see God in the things around us. I I sometimes marvel that people aren't more interested in books that Mr. Smith and I tend to be interested in, books on evolution and creation. And it it struck me why I like these books so much. Not only is there that, that human desire to disprove stupidity, uh, there, You know, God says if they think there's no God, they're, they're fools. But also it shows the incredible greatness of our Creator. I, I have this one here, Billions of Missing Links. I think somebody had sent it to me, a copy of this, uh, Jeffrey uh, Simmons, M.D. He also authored another book that I have, uh, What Darwin Didn't Know. But I want to read just a little bit here. You know, we we look out in the spring. Well, most in the summer, but I guess it's still spring. We we look at our hummingbirds and we look at the little green lizards and the skinks, the different kind of lizard, and we look at the Carolina bluebirds that are out there. And sometimes we, and my wife, gnashes her teeth with the uh, squirrels that are digging up in her garden. But nevertheless, um, we we enjoy those things, and, and I think that most of us do, and. If you anybody fishes, if you if if you like to fish, and you see a river, well, let me put it this way: If you don't like to fish, you see a river and you see beauty. If you like to fish, you see the beauty and you're looking under the water at those fish that are so stealthy. They they can they can be there and you almost never see them because they hide so well. They're they're camouflaged. Wow, how'd that happen? Uh, They're wonderfully camouflaged. Now in the ocean. Uh, Some are brightly colored and and so forth, but if they're in a trout stream, they've got to hide out there. Otherwise, some bird will come down and get them. At any rate, uh, I want to read just a little bit here. This book is just chock full of of proofs of God's existence. But this is just the, the forethought. This is before you really get into the book. It says, at a very precise moment, nine months after conception, a hormone leaves the unborn child's brain. It travels across the placenta, enters the maternal circulation, or the mother's circulation, and makes its way to the mother's pituitary gland. Although this hormone is a very complicated and convoluted chemical, its message is quite simple. I am ready. Start the delivery process. My lungs have matured enough to breathe on their own. My heart is strong enough to assume control. My gastrointestinal tract is prepared to process food, and my brain is eager to start learning about the world. My ten trillion cells are poised to work together. It's the unborn child, not the mother, who makes this decision. Then the mother and child orchestrate the journey together. This is not a spontaneous event. The mother's body began preparing the instant the sperm entered the selected egg. One might even urge or argue that her body began preparing at puberty, or even at the time of her birth. Her uterus, now enormously stretched to accommodate the growing fetus, is ready to squeeze down and push. The baby's head has been shifted downward with its arms at its side and legs tucked in, so that it can more easily pass through the birth canal. Only 3.5% of human babies present feet first or breech. The mother's breasts are engorged with food. Endorphins are flowing to help with the discomfort. I'm not sure that all women would recognize that. They might say that it's still uncomfortable, but uh, without those endorphins, it might be even worse. Hormones are giving her strong Maternal instincts. And the, the passageway has a special glycogen to prevent infection. The connection between the pelvic bones loosens to help the bony portion of the canal expand. Every maternal instinct has been primed. Every system is focused on success. At first, the contractions come slowly, but it squeezes and gets stronger as time goes by the journey is often cited as the most dangerous moment in a person's life indeed it might be yet every aspect of the process is well coordinated prearranged rehearsed for millennia and designed to bring a new life into being even the seams of the bodies of the baby's skull uh, have not yet fused so that its unusually large head will be pliable enough to make it through As the process unfolds, the adrenal glands add a blast of stress hormones to help the infant cope. The newborn child will not breathe until it has cleared the birth canal. Anything sooner would lead to certain suffocation. It also will not wait too long. Rising carbon dioxide levels and falling oxygen concentrations will prompt that first breath. Otherwise, there could easily be permanent brain damage. The old slap on the bottom belongs to the cinema. The inner workings of every newborn know precisely when to breathe, how deeply to breathe, and how to clear the debris inhaled from the amniotic sac. Moments before the mother and child completely disconnect, the newborn receives a last-minute blood transfusion from the umbilical cord. The placenta, which has been purposely storing nutrients for this moment, infuses extra nourishment. And there is evidence that the fetus sends some of its own stem cells into the mother's bloodstream. These newly discovered stem cells seem to be purposefully left behind to help maintain the mother's good health. The child's survival might depend on it. Just a little bit more. Every step is pre-programmed. Medical folks like to say they delivered the baby, but they mostly catch it. As the newborn takes its first breath, two tiny, two tiny flaps inside its heart automatically close off the hole between the right side and the left side of that organ, which then roots unoxygenated blood to the newly functioning lungs. The large blood vessel that connects the aorta to the lungs also automatically seals off. The artery and the umbilical and uh, umbilical cord shifts to servicing the new bladder. And it goes on from there. It just it's phenomenal when you think about all the things that have to happen. The hormones that kick in. Uh the the processes the the, the two flaps in the heart closing off and sending the blood elsewhere just at the right time. It's an amazing thing. I, I, I love books like this because They not only show the foolishness of evolution, how could all that happen? How could all have been orchestrated? But nevertheless, they show the greatness and the mind of our Creator. We must believe that God exists. We have some literature on the subject. I hope we've all read it, evolution versus creation, and what both sides miss. And the real God, proofs and promises, by Mr. Smith and Mr. Uh, Dr. Reneo. I, I hope we read those. I hope we study them. I hope we think about the things that are written there. And I, and I hope that we even take some time to read some outside materials that, that give scientific knowledge that we would not otherwise have. But these individuals tell us what it is. So we must believe that God exists. Lesson number three, there's a reward for those who exercise faith. There's a reward for those who exercise faith. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. The Bible is full of examples of God blessing his servants when they obeyed him. We have the examples of Daniel and his three friends, of Noah, of Abraham. And the list goes on where God intervened to those who stepped out in faith in a very dangerous situation. Now, it doesn't mean that people should step out foolishly over something that is not important, but when it comes to disobedience to God's law, which is very clear, then we should step out in faith. But faith does not always produce the immediate outcome that we seek. For example, in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, 2 Corinthians 12, and verse seven, we read here of the apostle Paul, where he he told of a a vision that he had a remarkable vision of uh, God's throne or glory is uh, of of heaven, not heaven, but uh, of the kingdom to come. He says, "Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations." A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength uh, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So we find that there are times when we go to God, whether it be for healing, which seems to be the case here, or for some other situation that we want God to intervene, we find that he doesn't always intervene in exactly the way that we expect at the moment that we expect, does that mean that God does not care? You know, think about Joseph. Joseph obeyed God. Here was a situation presented to him where he could have gotten involved uh, sexually uh, against the law of God. And how many young men, had they been in the same circumstances, would have jumped at such a uh, situation? And yet Joseph ran out, and where did he end up? He ended up in prison for several years. Sometimes when you obey God, it doesn't happen the way that you hope it will, the way that you expect it will. Let's go back to Hebrews 11 again. Hebrews 11 and verse 35. It says, Women received their dead raised to life again. But then others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourging, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. We saw that at that torture museum in Mexico, Mexico City. And that wasn't something that was done necessarily in Mexico. It was more of a European thing. Even I, as I recall, in the seventeen, eighteen hundreds 1800s, they were still doing that. And, of course, you've heard of the expression, drawn and quartered, where they would sever the ligaments there and then attach each limb to horses and tell them to take off. Unbelievable what people will do, what human beings can do to other human beings. But apparently there were those, some say Isaiah, I, you know, we don't know, it doesn't, the scriptures don't tell us who, but it says they, that almost indicates more than one, were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. John the Baptist had his head taken off. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, or all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They didn't see, receive it yet. Not in their lifetime, but their next waking moment. The promise will be there. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So we see here that God does not always answer our prayers even when we do have faith, even when we exercise faith in the way that we want it to be done immediately. I know I've mentioned this before, but i never actually had somebody say you have rheumatoid arthritis, but I had arthritis and they said I had high rheumatoid factor and doctor said he was surprised how little damage was done there. But I was anointed for it some years back and uh, probably about two decades ago and it didn't go away immediately. And you could see the evidence in my hands, in my wrists, in my elbows. And I could certainly feel it. But God intervened over a period of time, and I'm very thankful for that, because I know that there was nothing that I did to change that dynamic. And I often wonder, would I be able to do the things I'm doing today if God hadn't intervened? But he didn't do it immediately. It was years. And then gradually, slowly, something happened, and you wake up one day and you realize there's something's happened here. And yet, how many times do people have anointings, and they get up, and if they're not healed immediately, well, that didn't work. Kind of like, well, I took an aspirin; it didn't work. Faith must continue. But even when God doesn't intervene, whatever the situation might be, it doesn't mean that God's forgotten us or that our faith was in vain. There is a reward. Notice over in verse 13, speaking of Abraham and Sarah and uh, uh, Noah and Enoch before them. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, the new Jerusalem, which will come down. Notice also in verse 24, By faith Moses... When he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, or the pleasures of sin for a season, for a time, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You know, we see here that in the faith chapter that God didn't always make life easier for these individuals. He didn't always intervene, as we read there in the latter part of the, the book. He did intervene at times, but the real reward that all of these people are seeking and that you and I are seeking has not yet come. That reward is still in the future. This body is going to die at some point in time, unless Christ enter, uh, returns before that happens. But many of us will die. So what? I don't mean to be cavalier about it. We sorrow when we lose a loved one. But the sooner we get it through our own mind that, hey, we're not going to live forever, maybe a little bit easier it is. To accept, And it takes sometimes a little bit of age and maturity to where you you've come to that. Although when you actually face it, it's not so easy, is it? People who seem so brave before uh, don't always express that same courage when it really comes down to it. Because we're human. And this is all we know right now is this physical life. Lesson number four. The reward comes to those who diligently exercise faith. Notice it says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And Luke, the 17th chapter, I won't turn there for the sake of time, but here was a situation in which the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Actually, let's turn over there. I will turn there. Uh, Luke 17. And verse 5 says, increase our faith. And what's interesting is that it looks on the surface as though Jesus did not answer the question. Verse 5, increase our faith. That's what the Apostle said to the Lord. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once, sit down and eat. But he will not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Notice Jesus says, I think not. So likewise you. When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. In other words, I think that what we're seeing here is he. this follows his statement or the, the question, increase our faith. He said, if you want to have more faith, you've got to go above and beyond. Notice over in First John 3. 1 John 3. And in verse 22, it says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? He says, Because we keep His commandments. that's required of us. And do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And the do has a continuous tense. So we have to go above and beyond. We can't just do the bare minimum and think that our faith is going to increase. We have the example in Mark, the ninth chapter, I won't turn there, verses 19 to 29, where they couldn't cast out a demon and they said, well, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, because this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. In other words, we have to be closer to God. Sometimes it takes a little extra effort on our part. And then Romans, the 10th chapter, Romans 10 and verse 17. he says, So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I believe it was Mr. Armstrong explained to, maybe it was one of his daughters, I don't remember who it was exactly, uh, you know, wanted more faith, and he said, You need to, you need to study about an hour a day. Now, I'm not making that as a, a rule or, Certainly, I don't think he was saying that as a rule. But if we want to grow in faith and strength spiritually, we've got to go above and beyond in that way and in other ways. We can't just do the bare minimum. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Yes, faith is necessary to please God. We must believe that he exists and really know in our mind that he does exist, and that there is a reward to those who live a lifetime of faith, not just when we need healing, but a lifetime of faith, of obedience to God. And that reward comes to those who diligently seek him.